that I would never be a blonde hair, blue eyed fairy princess, and that those stories had nothing to do with Leaders me. all over the world have, have started to manipulate their populations. This poem is called Best Laid. It's clear the wind won't let up and it swims out. Good afternoon and welcome to this podcast session for the Rhodes Humanities Forum. My name's Jean Bolchin. I'm a second year Rhodes Scholar from New Zealand studying for my Master's in English Literature. And my name is Yan Chen. I'm a Master's student in Comparative Literature and Critical Translation and I'm a first year Rhodes Scholar from China. I'm Maria Sachiko Sassiri. I'm an Associate Professor of Literature um, and the Founding Director of the Center for Experimental Humanities at Bard College in New York. I was a 2006 scholar from Virginia and I was at Keeble College. So first of all, I will lead the discussion about children's fantasy literature. And then in the second portion of the interview, we'll discuss experimental humanities. Brilliant. So Maria, tell me, what sparked your interest in children's fantasy literature? Well, I grew up absolutely loving fairy tales. Um, I was one of those kids who devoured them. I read every single copy of every kind of fairy tale in the public library in my local school when I was little. And, um, you know, just absolutely adored them, played at fairy tales. And one day I was, um, you know, it was some one summer day and I came into the house, went to the bathroom, was washing my hands. I must have been like 10 years, 9, 10 years old. And I looked in the mirror and I had this sudden devastating and really embarrassing revelation that I would never be a blonde hair, blue eyed fairy princess and that those stories had nothing to do with me and they'd been written for someone else. And I don't know if I would still say that today, but it was this really eye-opening moment. I don't think I really understood what it meant yet, but this sense of having devoured stories that were so important to me, but that were um, kind of culturally inherited, but didn't necessarily reflect my background and my reality. Um, I'm, I'm half Japanese and uh, half Italian, um, you know, and I know many other young people from a lot of different kinds of backgrounds have had this sort of experience with children's literature. Um, and in particular, one thing that stuck with me is the way in which enchantment um, and magical realms of possibility, of wonder, of joy, of happy endings, um, that those things tended to belong, at least when I was growing up, to a kind of literature that almost exclusively featured kids that looked a particular way. Um, and so as I got older, I got interested in some of these questions. At the same time, as I still loved a lot of the elements that made me fall in love with fairy tales. Um, you know, I had these questions about how did it get this way? Um, you know, why did I think that those stories were the natural stories for me to read growing up? Um, and that's how I ended up doing all this research in medieval literature and its resonances in 20th century culture, um, and then eventually moving on to what was medieval research in um, C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien as medievalists and their work here at Oxford, and the way in which they really helped to set off a movement in children's fantasy and anglophone fantasy writing for children that really has lasted through the 20th century. So. In that vein, if you can perhaps encapsulate it in a nutshell, why do you think that so many people are drawn to literature, fantasy literature that is set in a medieval, British-looking, sounding world? Such a good question, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's because in the way that we teach intellectual history, there's this notion that there's only really one period in all of 
European history, um, or I guess in this colonialist vision of the history of the world, which kind of extends from the classical world to Europe to the Americas, um, which is of course not truly the history of the world, but a history of the world. Um, but in that history of the world, there's only really one shady dark period in it where we don't really know exactly what happened, supposedly. There's this notion that the Middle Ages is the middle, stuck between the classical period and European Enlightenment. And on either side of it are these bright lights of intellectual achievement and um, knowledge and reason. And in between was this period of mystery and darkness. Now that mystery and darkness is actually quite appealing. It's a place of also imagination, of possibility, maybe of dragons, um, and you know also great brutality, but also the possibility um, for heroism. And so I think that that has been really important to it. I would argue that as modernity emerges and they feel like there are fewer and fewer places for that kind of enchanted possibility, um, we see a lot of children's literature then pick up the mantle and create realms of imaginative possibility that borrow from that period and place children, modern children often, into those worlds to show the ways in which modern children can still provide connections to that part of human history, or you know, particularly European history, which is one of the reasons often so racially and culturally inflicted. Yes, because I remember studying fantasy literature in my undergrad. I had quite a few classmates criticize it for its racist, sexist, escapist tendencies. Um, so you would say this is a fair judgment in general on their part, or perhaps you know, it's a bit of a stereotype, maybe? Um, I think it is a fair judgment mm -hmm. in general, mm -hmm. but not in every case. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that there have been a lot of really interesting um, people writing lately. Mm -hmm. um, and in the past as well, there were other kinds of fantastical writing. I mean, even W.B. Du Bois was writing fantastical, you know, fiction. So it's, it's not always been the province of uh, a kind of Anglo-Saxon mission in the kind of racist sense, but it has the, the kind of the dominant sense of the genre, what most people think of when they think of fantasy, is those kinds of knights and you know, Narnia and those kinds of things. They, they are shot through with kind of pretty profound Orientalism, racism, and um, hierarchies that people are nostalgic for, um, but often are kind of problematic. So the, the, it's both sides, you know? I think you can love something and, and know that there are reasons that it, it hurts people, um, and that one of the greatest challenges, and I think one of the most exciting things I've seen is the way that people are trying to reimagine what fantasy can be so that it truly is a world where everybody belongs. And that doesn't mean just like airdropping in some people of color, but fundamentally reimagining the underlying structure of what an enchanted place looks like. Who are enchanted people? What is an enchanted time? Um, and that does take a lot of creativity and work, but I, th I see it happening. What do you think is the future of children's fantasy? Do you see fantasy as always being left behind in the medieval world? What do you think of, say, the com combination of science fiction and, and fantasy literature? Yeah, there's some amazing um, intersections of sci-fi and fantasy out there. Um, I, I write about Nydia Korofor's Binti series in the conclusion of my book. Um, there are other people, N.K. Jemisin, a lot of great writers who are thinking about, you know, what are the lines between the fantastical and science fiction, as we might call it. But also, I, I would say that even those books that are looking to the deep past don't necessarily mean that they have to be left behind because there are lots of deep pasts. You know, there wasn't only one 
you know, what we would now call medieval period. Those years ticked on all over the world. Um, and there were so many different kinds of civilizations, so many different kinds of texts and people and religions. Um, and we're starting to see more and more fantasy that is emerging out of those traditions, whether it's indigenous from the North America or from uh, various, you know, West African um, mythologies, all kinds of different uh, fantasy starting to emerge, uh, East Asian as well. So there's a lot of, of new kinds of fantasy coming out that's thinking about the diversity of kind of deep pasts and what that might mean for enchanted futures. That's so exciting. Um, now, I know that you wrote your DPhil thesis on the Oxford School of Children's Fantasy. Can you tell me a little bit about what the school entails and perhaps who were the Founders, in a sense, of, of this school. Yeah, I mean, a lot of what my book does um, is grounded in this work I did in my DPhil, which is identifying um, this kind of legacy, a new genealogy of children's fantasy, actually. So a lot of people, when you say fantasy, they think, oh yeah, Tolkien, Lewis, um, and people know they were friends. But what they don't know is that Tolkien and Lewis were also um, Oxford Dons who were really central, Tolkien in particular, but then soon Lewis as well, to... Um, overhauling the undergraduate English curriculum at Oxford at the moment when a lot of different universities were trying to figure out what they were doing in English. English is a really young field, actually. Um, and in the late 20s and 1930s, when they were working on this, people were moving towards modernism. That's where you're starting to see the rise of what has become the kind of norm in a lot of uh, English programs even today. And Tolkien and Lewis wanted to dig in and push back. And they put in place a curriculum that was very medieval, but also that looked at medieval material, not just as a kind of linguistic exemplars, which is what they'd primarily been in the past, but as literature. And if you look at the texts they picked, they were fantastical texts. Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, the Mort d'Arthur, um, Sir Orfeo, uh, Mandeville's Travels. So all of these different kinds of medieval texts that were imagining fantastical possibilities, heroism, love, um, a lot of things that we see actually they were writing about in their fantasy as well. So um, I was really interested by that and then was noticing that there were all of these children's fantasy authors who became really important, particularly in Britain, who studied English as undergraduates under that particular curriculum. So Susan Cooper, who wrote the Dark is Rising series, Diana Wynne-Jones, who wrote many, many wonderful fantasy novels, Philip Pullman, who's maybe most famous for his Dark Materials books, um, as well as Kevin Crossley Holland, who's written um, a number of different kinds of um, fantastical or medieval-inspired children's novels. Um, they all were students here. They all went on to write in a vein that was very similar to what Tolkien and Lewis were doing. So while they were not a school of people who maybe kind of corresponded and said, let's all do this, rather they shared influences and um, a kind of educational background that gave rise to, I would argue, the backbone of what ends up becoming the dominant mode of children's fantasy writing in the 20th century. So by the time you get to someone like J.K. Rowling, she's responding to, and in many ways, taking on board a lot of those traditions um, in her writing. And so, of course, when her books explode and become this enormous publishing phenomenon, um, we see even more texts pick that up and continue to spread it out widely. Mm, brilliant. Thank you so much. I'll hand over to Yen now. Yeah. Um, so um, you're the founding director of the Center for Experimental Humanities at Bard College. And can we start with just what that term experimental humanities means? Absolutely. So we are a center and also an academic curriculum that's dedicated to thinking about how technology mediates what it means to be human. 
And we take this from a contemporary perspective. So we are very close allies and I suppose cousins to digital humanities programs. So thinking about how digital culture and digital tools and methods might be integrated into the study of the humanities and also the work we do in the humanities. But we're also um, interested more broadly in this question of experimentation and pushing the boundaries around how we do the humanities, both now and also historically. So thinking back about old technologies, um, previous ways of doing things, as well as pushing boundaries in terms of what's available to us now. So that means that our courses might include something like a, a medieval manuscript course that's asking students to think about the world in a pre-print culture and compare it to a world in what some have called a post-print culture. How do texts circulate? How do authors um, identify themselves or not be identified? So that kind of thing would be just as much as what part of what we do as creating a di public-facing digital project project that brings local historical information to the community. So those are some of the kinds of things that we do. And encoded in this name, you know, experimental humanities is this invitation for anyone to get involved. Digital humanities sometimes can be a little bit exclusionary or feel exclusionary, even if it doesn't want to be, where people feel like they have to be programmers to get in the door. And I think for a lot of humanists, that can be really alienating. Whereas experimental, um, it is a, something where people can say, I can do an experiment. I can try if it's okay that I fail. Artists will say, I'm very experimental. And a lot of scientists will say the same. And so you end up getting a lot of different people in the room. And so interdisciplinarity is also really at the core of what we do. Mm -hmm. And just picking up on that, talking about interdisciplinarity, um, for an interdisciplinary field like the experimental humanities, collaboration becomes a very vital component. And so what is, in your opinion, the most exciting thing about the new relationships or collaborations that the center has been forging? Yeah, great question. I think that a lot of people get worn down being academics. There's a lot of daily um, requirements that get in the way of the thing that brought you there in the first place. And one of the most exciting things about working in a collaborative mode is the opportunity to explain what you do and what you're passionate about from you know the perspective of your work to people who are interested in the same kind of questions, but from a different background. And then you end up learning things from each other that makes you even more excited. And then suddenly you're fired up with the same kind of energy that you had when you first got interested in, in doing this kind of work in the first place. What made you want to go into working in the academy? Um, in a bigger sense, uh, there's, I think, so much that needs to be rethought about how we um, structure our working relationships in the academy. And it creates an opportunity not only for, you know, high-ranking faculty from different disciplines to work to, together, but also for undergraduates to be really active part of research, for community members to be thought leaders in the work that we do. Um, so that we're the possibility of learning from each other about how we think in different ways and then also really widening our understanding of um, who can be equal partners in doing work together. So speaking of the partners um, taking part in these initiatives at the center, what disciplines do people at the center come from? Yeah, so there's a lot. So because we're a center, we house and I guess you could say incubate a lot of different kinds of projects and clusters. Um, so one, for example, we have a new uh, food cluster, which has emerged, which is, yeah, really fun. So we have biologists, historians, um, local, the farmer. Um, 
We've been working with indigenous studies, faculty. Um, so there's just a lot of different kinds of people coming together. And with something like that, um, you know, we have um, a microbiologist who is studying traditional fermentation practices as a path to food safety as a kind of alternative to the kind of highly industrialized versions and also um, better, more sustainable for the environment, local, those kinds of things. Um, people thinking about indigenous food production practices also um, ends up intersecting a lot with questions of um, environmental sustainability and decolonization. Um, so that's like one of them that's just been emerging now. We've had a long running sound cluster where we have faculty from physics and cognitive science and um, ethnomusicology and anthropology and literature and human rights. Um, and they're all coming together to think about sound and its resonances, if you will. Um, and they put together symposia and various things like that. So, um, and then I guess more thinking about the community, we have a digital history lab, which is, um, I, I kind of mentioned before, that our digital history lab is going out and working with various members of the community, often who actually bring us ideas of things they want to do um, in you know, whether it's small projects like taking oral histories and entering them into the historical record so that individual voices, not just scholar writings, become part of the history that people can access, um, to much bigger projects where, you know, we'll be working with local historical societies, gathering papers that are just sitting and collecting dust in drawers and digitizing them, turning them into public-facing websites with stories of, um, in our case, the Hudson Valley apple farming industry and um, the histories around that. So we're doing lots of kinds of things. It's a lot of fun. Uh, it's always super busy. And um, on top of these kinds of things, BARD students all do year-long senior projects. So we have a lot of undergraduates who do their own kind of major interventions in individual research projects, obviously with you know often help from faculty in the community, but um, who are really leading the way in the work that, in different kinds of work they're doing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And speaking of leading the way, um, I find it so fascinating that your work encompasses both um, steeping yourself very deeply in history and a deep knowledge of history, but also um, looking into the future with experimental humanities. And so um, what do you think is the way that the humanities are going, and how do you think new fields like experimental humanities can shape and change and contribute to that future? Thanks. Yeah. I mean, our three pillars in EH are history, theory, and experimental practice. I feel like sometimes the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater when we're thinking about what future possibilities lie ahead for us. Whereas, um, you know, I see that the biggest strength that we have in the humanities is the ability to learn from the past and to um, learn from people whose voices maybe have not been lifted up previously. And so I really do see the best possible future as one where we are reaching into the past, reaching deep into the critical theory, and also actively experimenting, trying to build things with our hands in ways that help us to imagine different and better futures. Too often, I think, in higher education, um, we try to align ourselves for a future we think is inevitably coming. And usually it's a pretty dire looking future um, you know, of increased casualization, of, of workers being replaced by robots or whatever it is. And you know, I think that it it's on us in many ways to help our students to carve out spaces for experimentation where they are going to help imagine and even prototype other kinds of futures. And really kind of interdisciplinary discourse is at the heart of that, as well as is a good grounding in the histories that have gone before, both ones that are well known and ones that need to be better understood. 
That's so exciting. Well, thank you ever so much for talking with us today. I know that it's for both of us and for the listeners, it's been an illuminating and wide ranging discussion. So we really appreciate it. And all the best for the launch of your book, Reenchanted, The Rise of Children's Fantasy Literature in the 20th Century. Thank you so much. The Rhodes Humanities Forum podcast was edited by me, Christy Calloway-Gale, and brought to you by the Rhodes Trust. The music you heard was Happy Ukulele by scottholmesmusic.com.